You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. So I know most of you know, but we, we've been working our way through the first few chapters of, of Genesis, uh, discussing what we're entitling the sermon series, the Missio Dei, which is the fancy Latin term for the mission of God. And in the first couple of chapters, as we've walked through the creation account, we've seen that all of God's creation is made, created, done with order and with purpose. There's an idea in, in philosophy called a teleology, teleology. It's this idea that everything has a a telos or a purpose or an end, every created thing. And a large part of our belief as Christians that we see evidenced in scripture is that all of creation, every created thing has a telos. It has an end. It has a purpose. And as we turn to our passage today, and look at the first marriage, we see that like the rest of creation, marriage was created purposefully, with an end in mind, with a telos, with a purpose. It has a goal for its creation. Marriage was created for something. In verse 24 that we just read, a scripture says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So when the author of scripture says, this is why we can read it as for this reason or for this end or for this purpose. So we see very quickly in scripture in Genesis 1 and 2 is that marriage has a purpose. So today we'll be asking the question then, what is marriage for? What is its purpose? end or what is its purpose? What is marriage for? But before we dive in too far, let me pray for us as we engage God's word this morning. Um, God, we recognize and we thank you that you are our creator, that you did create us in the image of God. Male and female, you created us. We thank you that you created even the institution of marriage and created it not just haphazardly or for it to be whatever we would make it into, but you created it with a purpose. So God, I pray for all of us, whether we are married or not, whether we have great views of marriage or horrible views of marriage. God, this morning, I pray that as we unpack your word, that you would speak to us and reveal to us the answer to the question, what is marriage for? We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, that you would illuminate your word for us to help us hear, receive, and then do. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as we, as we think about the ends of marriage, like we have to admit that um, the odds are most of us <laughs> probably have a strange view of it in some sense, right? The reason is because as we think about culture, culture has many answers to the question, what is marriage for? Just to think about a few, right? One end or one mean, one telos, if you will, that culture would say 
marriage is for is for my own personal happiness, right? It's like, it's all about me. Everything my spouse should do is about me and making me happy. Or another one, it's about relational, complete relational fulfillment, right? It's like, man, I'm lonely, but if I get married, then I'll be good. I will be fulfilled finally. Another one, right, is uh, marriage is is for uh, meeting biological needs, uh, right? It's like, that's one end that culture will say marriage is for. But friends, whether we're married or not, you know, it's important for us to see and understand that God has different answers than that. And as we think about marriage, again, whether we're married or not, it's, inf- it's important for us to understand what God's answer is to the question, what is marriage for? You know, if, uh, if we all tried to use screwdrivers to hammer nails in, right, we might get the job done sometimes, but it wouldn't always get the job done. And a lot of times it would be frustrating and probably damaging to our hand or whatever, <laughs> maybe the, the thing we're trying to fix, right? Marriage like all created things, has a purpose or an end. So I want us to take a look at scripture and then let us answer that question, what is marriage for? Now, I need to say at the outset, right, um, when I say what is marriage for and I, and I give you an answer or a thing to ponder on, it does not mean that these things are only made for marriage, okay? All squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Put differently for you non-geometric people, all hamburgers are sandwiches, but not all sandwiches are hamburgers, okay? So when I say marriage is for something, it doesn't mean that that thing is for marriage alone, okay? So I say that just as a caveat for for my people here that are not married, okay? Now, the first thing that marriage is for that we see really quickly in Scripture is for friendship. Marriage is for friendship or companionship. Look at your Bibles in Genesis 2, 18 with me. Then the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So as we look at the creation account, we see from the beginning that mankind being alone is not good. But wait a second, hold on, man's with God, right? (laughs) Doesn't man just need God and we're good? Well, God's answer to that is, is no, right? God says it's not good for man to be alone, even as man is in relationship with God. This relational dynamic, it shows us that one purpose or one telos, one end for marriage is friendship, companionship. In verse 23, Eve is created and the man responds, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Some scholars have proposed that this is Adam's way of saying, finally, Meeting you fills a relational void that I had, right? Adam played as Tom Cruise is saying, Eve, you complete me. And Eve played as Renee Rizelwiger is saying, Adam, stop, stop. You had me at bone of my bone, right? God is creating us to have relational fulfillment, not completely, but in part in marriage. Now, now of course, right, we have to say, Spouses do not complete us in a relational sense. A lot, of, a lot of people know that one human can only bear like 25% of our relational fulfillment is, is what a lot of psychologists say, right? Like that's a small number. That means there's 75% left, right? So your spouse will never completely fulfill you relationally, but marriage is still made with the end of friendship in mind. It's God alone, right, that truly satisfies, but we do need relationship friendship. 
Dr. Allison, last week, as he, as he talked about our embodiment, you know, he argued um, that the proper state of human existence is embodiment. And I would add to that, the proper state of human existence is relational. Tim Keller, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, he, he talks about a, two features of real friendship, two features of real friendship that every friendship must have. He says they must have constancy, and transparency. He goes on to say, real friends always let you in and they never let you down. Real friends always let you in and they never let you down. So friendship and marriage, it requires constancy, transparency, and I would add that it requires longevity, right? Pop culture has given us this idea and messed us up in a way that we're going to you know, like date somebody for a year, get married, and then boom, best friendship is bestowed upon you, right? It's like, that, that's more, I, I don't know, uh, insert, insert Disney love story than, than scripture, right? It's like, that's just not, that's not how friendships work, right? As Keller says, it requires constancy and transparency and longevity, right? It's showing up, it's opening up for years and years and years. So marriage is for friendship, Second thing marriage is for is dominion, okay? Dominion, I know that's a a weird word, right? This is not uh, domineering, it's dominion. Okay, so we see in verse 18 that this is alluded to. Look at your Bibles with me, Genesis 2, 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So so God's gonna make a helper, but, but a helper for what? What is this helper going to help with? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we see that God has called humankind to what we refer to often as the cultural mandate, right? The cultural mandate. Here's a reminder of of God's um, creation of mankind and then the command he then gives mankind to execute. If you look a little bit further up in your Bibles, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And then here's the command, the cultural mandate. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, uh, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So we, mankind, were created to have dominion, to, to rule over creation. Adam was, was given a project of sorts, a, a career, if you will, or uh, as sometimes we use the word vocation. And Eve was created as a helper to be a, a running mate to achieving this vocation of subduing the earth. Now, a, a quick note on the word helper, which can often be abused. Ladies, this does not mean that you are your husband's personal assistant. Okay, you're not the, the like secretary answering all the emails for the solopreneur who's trying to build an empire. It also doesn't mean that like you have to stay at home while your husband works or that you can't work, right? That's not what helper means or connotates in any way. The word helper is actually all throughout scripture, a military term. The term helper is, is a strong and it's a fierce word. It talks often about God as a helper. My God's not a doormat, <laughs> right? My God isn't subdued to me, <laughs> right? Look at these passages of scripture. So here, this is what the word helper is talking about when it talks about God. And then obviously when it 
brings in this connotation to talking about Eve. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26, it said, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Now here, here are these words that are kind of in the same linguistic range, if you will, of the word helper. He is your shield, that's a big military term, and helper, that's a big military term, and your glorious sword. <laughs> All surrounding the word helper. Another popular one, Psalm 121, one ver, uh, verses one and two, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, the word helper is not some doormat, some lesser assistant type role in marriage. It's a strong word, a word that in many ways communicates rescue. It says, hey, Israel, you're about to get crushed by this army, but I'm gonna save you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to rescue you. So check this out, y'all. Remember that the cultural mandate, right? Genesis 1, 27 to 28, it's given to both man and woman. Both are given this vocation of filling the earth and subdue it, but they are created differently, right? As male and female, as we remember. They were, they were called to have this rulership, this dominion in different ways, meaning they were created differently in a way that they fit together to make this cultural mandate happen. Scholars, they note that the original Hebrew language, it literally says, I will make a helper like opposite. I will make a helper like opposite. We're like, that, that doesn't even make sense. You know, it's kind of like uh, when we say, you know, kind of not really, or sorry, not sorry, maybe, or kidding, not kidding, right? It's like, well, those, those phrases don't make sense, right? Like opposite, doesn't make sense. So it is strange, right? But if you think about a, a piece of a puzzle, right? Puzzle pieces, they, they, for them to fit together, they can't actually be the same thing, even if they're part of the same puzzle, right? So when this Hebrew word, it talks about like opposite, male and female being created, they're like each other, but they're opposite. They, they have to be different to actually fit, to point to something bigger than themselves, they're a part of this image-bearing puzzle, if you will, that God has created. This too is true of our marriage, guys, that in to, uh, we join together in complementary ways to fulfill God's mission of having dominion. So friendship, dominion. Um, th this next thing that we're going to talk about, we're going to do a little bit of church, $10,000 pyramid, because we have younger people in the audience, right? So the word that I would like to say, it sounds like, contextuality, okay, you with me? It sounds like contextuality, but it starts with the Latin word for six, okay? So that's what I'm going for. If you know it, stay with me. If not, ask your adult neighbor. If you still don't, if both y'all don't know, talk to me later and I'll explain it to you. You'll probably catch on in a second. So that's the word that I'm thinking about, okay? This is one of the few exceptions to the, the uh, all squares are not rect or all squares are rectangles, all, not, all rectangles are not squares, right? I do think this word, this, this word that we is kind of, alongside physical intimacy, this is one of the few things that we would say is for the medium, the context of marriage. As we look at this aspect of marriage, right, this is like the one glaring exception to that, to that word. And for a second, I want us to take a step back to look to that fancy Latin word of teleology, right? Okay, because this thing that I'm talking about, right, intimacy, physical intimacy specifically, it has an end, okay? So again, to, to give you some more uh, creative things, have ends, right? 
if I tried to use this here iPad to hammer a nail, right, it would actually probably destroy this thing, right? It would destroy it because this was not created for that. You with me? Okay, so oftentimes if we divorce things from their telos, from their end, it can destroy the thing or it can destroy the, the user, if you will. Okay, so that's one where it destroys the thing. Another example of my, my great iPad that does so many things, but doesn't do everything. If I'm having a nice dinner on the Belle of Louisville, which I've never done, I don't know if people do that, but here's an illustration nonetheless. And God forbid the Belle of Louisville starts to sink down into the Ohio. If I try to hop on this guy or hold on to it as my life preserver, not only does it destroy the thing, it destroys me, the user of this thing, because I have tried to use something outside, divorced from its telos, from its created ends. Okay, y'all tracking with me? So telos, ends, purposes are important when we use created things. The same is true for intimacy or our word that rhymes with contextuality. It has an end. So, so why do I bring that up? Well, I think our culture, right, says that either there are no ends or here are your ends that are totally different than what scripture would say. Okay, so uh, I think there's three things that if we, as we look at scripture, that this, this idea of physical intimacy, right, there are three ends for that, that thing, okay? The first, and guys, we, we need to keep this in mind because... Um, <laughs> Again, this can destroy the thing itself, right? Or the user or the one trying to engage in the thing. So there's three things, three ends for even this idea of physical intimacy. The first is procreative, right? Procreative, here procreation in that, right? Let's just be real. That's a biological reality, right? The, in a very literal way, the pieces fit together. That ha- that's an end, is <laughs> for procreation. And we need to keep that in mind, you know, like, God knows where babies come from, y'all, right? He's not like looking down and being like, y'all are using that for that, what? Right, like these are the ends of intimacy. But we need to hold on to that, right? Here's another one, recreative. (laughs) It's for the purpose of recreation, it's enjoyable, right? We see this all throughout scripture. If you don't think scripture talks about the recreative aspects of intimacy, you're not looking at the same scriptures, right? Song of songs, there's enjoyment between the husband and wife. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19, it says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her bosom satisfy you always. Haven't heard bosom at church in a while, but it's in scripture, right? It's recreative. Yeah. It's also, this is one, y'all, that I think is very important. This is a bigger word that I may have made up, but dictionary.com said it's not made up. Physical intimacy is unificative, right? Unificative. Love it. You can make words out of words. It's fun. It's unifying, right? This is an important thing that we need to talk about in the Christian faith. Genesis 2, 24, it reveals this, right? It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So yes, this becoming of one flesh is certainly referring to marriage, but it's also speaking to um, this reality of physical intimacy in the context of a marriage. The act itself is a unifying thing. It's, it's a bonding and a binding that happens, right? That's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know 
that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. And then he brings in the text that we're looking at today. He says, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. See, Paul, citing our passage today, he shows us that physical intimacy is more than just some like biological experience, like chewing food, right? It's like what Paul is saying is that it's an act that actually unifies two people together, one to another. So then what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is that happens outside of this medium of marriage, then there's a unification that happens outside of the thing that it was created to be held in. So you see, friends, culturally, physical intimacy, it's, it's been probably reduced just to the, the recreative aspect, the recreative end. But again, when we divorce things from their created ends, from their purposes, it destroys the thing itself, or it can destroy or distort the person engaging in that. Now hear me, that can actually happen in a marriage too. That can happen in a marriage too. If there's not a healthy and proper view of the ends of intimacy in marriage, frankly, it can become abuse. That's why we have to hold it all together. We have to see that it's, that it's a, a unificative act. It unionizes two people, that it is recreative. It is for enjoyment, but it sure as heck, it's a biological thing too. It's, it's procreative. It has ends. And we need to see that as we think about the ends of marriage itself. So tied closely to that, okay, stay with me here, right? Um, marriage is also for family, right? This is, I mean, pretty straightforward. Marriage is for the creating and building of a family. It, it, it's tied to our, our command from God to have dominion, to multiply, right? Marriage is, is for building these little image-bearing communities as family units. Now, we know there's different ways to start families, right? Biologically, by adoption. There's even folks, right, like bigger than our small family unit, right? There's this thing called the family of God, right? So there's many ways to create and, and to have family units, but marriage is one of the ways in which we have family, that we image God by creating these little image-bearing communities, and then the last thing that marriage is for is sanctification. Sanctification. Now, um, I say that this one maybe is a little bit more as a result of sin entering the world, but I still think as you look at the rest of Scripture, it is a purpose for marriage. Now, for those who don't know, sanctification is simply the fancy word for becoming more like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. That's what sanctification is, becoming more like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. Marriage makes you more like Jesus because it is hard. <laughs> no one, no amens, just me. Y'all's marriages are easy. All right, pastor. All right, all right. We'll do the hard work, the hard work together, you know. Marriage is hard because it, it actually, in a strange way, it doesn't say like, oh yeah, you're, you're married to a sinner, right? That person's messed up. I'm good. What happens is like the person you, you engage with, you get married to, they basically just hold up this big old mirror that says like, dude, look at all your junk. Look at all, like, here's, what, here's how messed up you are. Like, look at that, right? Just, it happens in a marriage. It can, it can illuminate things, maybe things that you've never seen before. 
but it also can mirror and show you things that you haven't been, been willing to deal with. So marriages are sanctifying because they, they put us into a way, into a position where we have to see our own sinfulness. Now, now one thing that you hear a lot, right, from people who are struggling in marriage is like the phrase like, well, they're not the person I married. <laughs> They've changed. And I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to minimize pain or heartache in marriages. I really don't. But I would argue that the Christian view of humanity, maybe, uh, yeah, following Christ, is, it has this end of sanctification in mind. It's like as Christians, we say, well, yeah, they should change. Your spouse has changed because if you're both following the Lord and pursuing him, you should be different. But if we have this view that like, again, I'm going to marry the perfect person, they're going to stay perfect forever, and they're going to fulfill all my needs perfectly forever along this long trajectory that we call marriage, and they're never going to change. If we have that view of marriage going into it, that we don't see, again, having the end in mind that sanctification, marriage is for sanctification, if we don't see that, then in six months we're going to be a disillusioned. Because the, the idea, the foundation that we built our marriage upon is faulty. But friends, if we go into marriages, and this is whether you're in marriage or not, right? If you're 20 years married and you're like, man, they are not the person I married. Or you're thinking about getting married and you're like, this person's going to be perfect forever. If we have a healthy view of sanctification, what we then can do is celebrate when our spouses change because again, Lord willing, they look more like Christ. I, I don't want to be the same person that I was when I was 23. I don't want Sarah to be the same person she was when she was 23. God is making us more like him. And that means we're different and we're changing and we should be. Theologian Stanley Howard Voss, he once wrote, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem, he would say, of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you have married yourself to. It's figuring out how do I love the person that now I feel like I don't know. And that's not, I don't know them in a bad way, but I don't know them in a different way. How do I love them differently as I'm growing and as they're growing? Y'all, in, in marriage, this is so important for us to remember, the other person should change just as much as we should change. And that's actually a good thing. As husband and wife pursue the Lord together, Lord willing, they will become like him in every way. All right, so stay with me, y'all, for a second. Just some final thoughts as we kind of wrap up, answering the question, what is marriage for? Okay, so I, I kind of want to give maybe three, uh, three words, if you will, right? So the first, I want to give a word on singleness, okay? Not to gloss over a huge thing that we need to talk about in relation to marriage. And there's three things that as we think about singleness, I want us to wrestle with, corporately, and then also if you are single. First, Singleness 
is a viable and biblical lifestyle. I'll say that one more time. One more time for the motorcyclists. That's a, a biblical and viable lifestyle, right? One man on a bike by himself. Anyways, singleness is, that was horrible, sorry. Not bad, not like that wasn't bad, but it's so stupid. Anyways, that's cool. But I got you back, we're back, right? All right, singleness is a viable and biblical lifestyle. Okay, if we can be honest for a second, the evangelical church has done a really bad job at holding up singleness as a viable calling in life. Okay, let's sit awkwardly in silence as we think about that, right? Singleness is not less than. Marriage is not better than. Marriage is not holier. Marriage doesn't sanctify you faster. Marriage is not the only way that you can have friendship. It's not the only way you can have dominion. It's not the only way you can have a family in a big sense of the term. It's not the only way you can be sanctified. Singleness is a viable and biblical option. We need to uphold that as a church. <laughs> we need to remember that. It's not for everybody. And that's, that's good and right. Some people have been called to singleness. Whether, whether it be through circumstances or, or a divine calling from God. If, if it's good enough for Jesus, if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, if it's good enough for, you're like, well, yeah, they're the holiest men in the Bible, right? If it's good enough for some of the saints, if it's good enough for people here in our own church, it is a viable and biblical option. So we need to remember that. Second, uh, we need plausibility structures. <laughs> That's a big goofy term. We need plausibility structures that show singleness is viable. That means we need pictures of what good singleness looks like in the church. I truly, I thank God that we have people in different life stages, uh, in different stages of singleness at different ages, maybe for different reasons. Maybe you've never married, maybe uh, you're, you're divorced or separated, or um, maybe you're a widower or a widow. We need people like this to be able to show us like, yes, you can follow Christ and honor Christ in your singleness. I know many of you or some of you, right? Like, just like marriage, right? Like there's seasons when it's easier to be single and harder to be single. There's times when you're like content in your singleness and times where you're just so mad at God. Like either God, why have you not given me the spouse that I long for? Or God, why did you take the spouse, spouse that I was with for so long? I know it's hard, but I would encourage you, friends who are single for whatever reason or different stages of life, continue to pursue that. And, and as best as you can, hold that with open hands and with gratitude as a gift. Because in doing so, you, you can show others like this plausibility, right? It's like our culture says, like, if you're alone, you're bad, right? It's like, no. We need people to give us pictures of what singleness can look like in a God-honoring way. And lastly, my last word on singleness, uh, as a church, singles and marrieds need to be involved in each other's lives. 
And this is a, a two-way street, right? Like, pursue each other. <laughs> if you're married, invite single folks in, right? Like, if you, man, if you think about the pandemic, right? Like, early stages of lockdown, what, some of you may have lived this, but like, what would it be like if you literally did not see a physical human for weeks or maybe even months? Or, or what would it be like if for weeks and months you did not like hug <laughs> another human? Or maybe just like stand there and let another human hug you as you sobbed uncontrollably because like the world's ending, right? Like what would that feel like? That's hard. As, as married folks, right, if you're mar- here today and you're married, like we, not, not as a pity party, hear me, not as a pity party, like, oh, what was you little single person? But just as in, engaging in, a, in that familial type atmosphere as a church, what would it look like to invite singles in? Sure, they may get to your house and all your kids are screaming and like, they're like, dude, what is this? Like, is this what marriage is like? You know, like maybe it's messy, it's hard. But invite them in, engage them like family. The same is true for singles, right? It's like, invite people into your apartment. You know, like, I don't care if you have kids or uh, toys for my kids, you know, like, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care if you have Frisbees, like, because you ate macaroni out of a Frisbee on the coffee table. It doesn't matter. We need to invite each other in to live together, to cross this, like, life stage, uh, if I can call it, like, life stageism, right? It's like, I only hang out with married people with, 2.5 kids and a dog. I only hang out with single people, right? It's like, we need to cross that barrier if we're going to be a diverse community as a church. So a word for my singles, or singleness, really, and then a word for Mary's. I I just want to encourage you to, to ponder the question, is there an area that we've talked about that you have forgotten what marriage is for? Is there an area that you have forgotten what marriage is for? Maybe an area that God is inviting you to consider what it looks like to push into more. Maybe it's friendship. What, what would it look like for you to be more constant and transparent with your spouse? What would it, what would it look like for you to always show up and never let your spouse down? What would it look like for you just to have fun? Maybe it's dominion. What would it look like for you to, to better support your spouse's vocational calling? And don't just hear like job, right? It's like your vocational calling as, as a father or a mother. Maybe it's a, a, a calling of, of, of a ministerial calling, right? Like whether paid or not. What would it look like for you to better support your spouse? Maybe it's an intimacy. What, uh, what would it look like for you to regularly pursue that with its proper end in mind? Hear that proper end in mind. Maybe it's in family. What would it look like for you to to point your kids to the way of the Lord or to think about family more broadly and inviting others in? Maybe it's in sanctification. What what would it look like for you to celebrate your spouse's changing? (laughs) What would it look like for you to celebrate that your spouse is not the same person they were 10 years ago and receive that as a gift rather than a grievance? 
And then the last thing that is really, it's a word for, or a word for all of us, two things. We, we must, all of us, always remember what marriage is for, right? We have to constantly keep the ends of marriage in mind. Whether you're married, uh, there's no time, if you're married, there's no time like the present to remember the why of your marriage. There's no time to remember what it's for. It's easy to lose sight of that, right? When the days and the weeks and the months, they roll on and on and you're in the groundhog day of like kids sports and making dinners and then going to work and then going to bed at 8.45 because you're so tired, right? It's like when you're stuck in that groundhog day type mentality, it's hard to remember sometimes what marriage is for. Why did God even create it to begin with? If you're not married and whether you desire to be married or not, we all need to remember and understand the purpose of marriage before entering into it, right? Without understanding what marriage is created for, we either as a single person called to be single forever can look at other marriages or other people and really not understand like what's going on. Or if we're seeking to be married, we can enter in and frankly get disillusioned and heartbroken because we've watched Disney more than read scripture. We need to remember what marriage is for. That's for all of us. And then lastly, church, y'all stay with me here. We must always remember, hear this, most important part of the day. All right, so Let's uh, tune out that big old dump truck. Hang in here. We must always remember that earthly marriages point to a greater marriage. Big G, big M. Earthly marriages always point to a greater marriage. Throughout all of scripture, friends, God uses one metaphor to speak about his love for mankind in the church and describe the overarching story of all of scripture. That metaphor is that of marriage. Right, check this out. Paul, again, in a different passage, brings in the passage in Genesis 2.24. Here's what Paul says about earthly marriages and how they mirror God's relationship with the church. Ephesians 5, 31 through, 31 through 32. Paul says, therefore, this is our passage in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's how Paul interprets this in terms of Christ in the church. He says, this mystery is profound... And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When we become Christ followers in this mysterious way that we don't totally understand, we become one with Christ. We become one flesh with Christ through the gospel. Right now, right? Because sin still exists in the world. We're in the weird time. Some theologians call it the already, not yet. The kingdom's already here, but it's not, te- not yet totally here, right? Think of it like engagement, right? Where it's like, you're, you're basically married, but you're, you're not yet married, right? We are one with Christ right now. It's a mystery that Paul says, but we're not fully yet with Christ in a weird way. That's why in scripture, we read about a future wedding feast that we'll actually partake in together. Often it's referred to as the wedding supper of the lamb. (laughs) The wedding supper of our suffering Lord. Here's what Revelations 19 says, picking up on this theme of marriage. It says, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, the church, 
has prepared herself. Church, every week when we gather together, we celebrate a meal called communion, which is a foretaste of this wedding feast, this wedding supper of the lamb. It it looks forward to the time when we will truly experience the oneness that we were created for. If you want to participate in this meal with us, um, this is a meal that's for Christians who are about the reality of Christ, but you can partake by grabbing uh, communion elements in the back. And friends, we partake of this meal because it does remind us of what Christ has done for us in the past, but it also looks forward to this beautiful unification that we'll experience him one day when all is made right. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he was eating with his disciples. And after they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. Let's take and eat the bread together. Then Jesus took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink the cup together. Friends, Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're actually pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. We're pronouncing the future wedding supper of the lamb that we will partake in. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.